2: Our topic today is Dementia Beyond Disease, New Ways of Thinking. Now, dementia is the medical name for the effects caused by disorders of the brain. Common instances, examples of these disorders include Alzheimer's disease, stroke and severe head injury. Dementia's effects may cause people to be unable to think well enough to carry out their daily activities to lose memory in important ways, to have serious difficulties making decisions, losing the ability to solve even simple problems, to lose their ability to control their emotions so they can easily become agitated or aggressive and to see things that are not there. Now, the dementia associated with Alzheimer's disease is the cause of much worry, worry to individuals as they age Worry to families of aging people. Worry to healthcare systems serving aging populations. And worry to governments faced with alarming statistical predictions. All of which is why our topic today, Dementia Beyond Disease and New Ways of Thinking, is so timely and so important. And to discuss it, our guest is Dr. Al Power. Now, Al is a board-certified internist and geriatrician. Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Rochester and a Fellow of the American College of Physicians and the American Society for Internal Medicine. He's a certified Eden Alternative Educator. His book, Dementia Beyond Drugs, Changing the Culture of Care, won a 2010 Book of the Year Award of the American Journal of Nursing and a Merit Award from the 2011 National Mature Media Awards. His 2014 book, Dementia Beyond Disease, Enhancing Wellbeing, is scheduled for release shortly. He's recognized internationally for his medical work. He's a trained musician and songwriter. Um, His works include Life Worth Living, and this is a celebration of elders and those who care for them. His songs have been recorded by, among others, Peter, Paul, and Mary, who performed his song of Elder Autonomy, If You Don't Mind. Walter Cronkite used his song, I'll Love You Forever, in a 1995 Discovery Channel profile of American families. So, welcome to the show, Al. Thank you, Gordon. It's great to be back. Excellent. Now, Al, please tell us more about your career and any personal experience you have with family caregiving.
3: Most of uh, the writing I've been doing is based on my professional work. I uh, began in private practice for seven years and then spent the better part of two decades working full-time in large nursing homes in Rochester, New York, and uh, more recently have uh, changed my career so that I'm traveling and educating uh, and writing full-time now. I uh, have uh, had uh, one relative. My mother-in-law lived with Alzheimer's disease for several years, and we helped support her both at home in assisted living and finally in the nursing home where I worked until her death. And uh, my mother has uh, generally been quite healthy but has had some health issues on and off, so uh, we've certainly provided some support there. Uh, but I have not had the, um, the experience that some of your listeners have of being a primary uh, person caring for somebody with chronic illness over the long term.
2: Okay, now let's talk about your book, Dementia Beyond Disease. Um, Please tell us about it.
3: Well, if I could uh, back up a little bit and start by talking about the first book, Dementia Beyond Drugs, just to get people up to speed. Because Dementia Beyond Disease is actually a true sequel. It really picks up where the first book left off. And uh, Dementia Beyond Drugs came out four years ago and came from my work in trying to uh, explain my concerns about the medications that are often used when, as you mentioned, people living with dementia become distressed. And uh, as you know, many people are given uh, fairly... Uh, heavily sedating medications particularly antipsychotic pills and uh, i know that uh, up in your area the toronto star just recently had a uh, an article about over medication in nursing homes and uh, i know you've had uh, other guests talking about this as well so my first book really wanted to accomplish two things number one to explain critically, look at these pills and show that they really were not as effective and were more harmful than we thought, but also to talk about the experience of dementia and how people living with dementia often have distress, not just because they have damaged brain cells, but because uh, the care environment may not support them in the way they need to, or they may have unmet needs that we don't recognize and, and that we just reach for the pill bottle. So having done that, and I think um, having a modicum of success, particularly after several governments and the media started talking more about over-medication, um, I realized that uh, a lot of people were paying attention to the message, but didn't really know how to start. And I felt like I needed to go farther and really uh, grab down to this one idea of well-being. And uh, how could I use this as a positive, strength-based framework uh, to help people living with dementia?
2: Right. Now, still with the book, why? You've already said largely why you wrote it, but I'm still going to ask you that. Mm-hmm. Who did you actually write it for? You've hinted at that. And how would you like your readers to benefit from it?
3: Oh. Uh, well, I've written it, uh, you know, I always say with these books, I'd like to reach as broad an audience as possible. Um, one thing I will say clearly for readers is that this is not a book that's aimed primarily at doctors. I certainly enjoy when doctors read it, and many of them have benefited, but the approach and the language are not written as you would write a medical journal. This is really a book for a broad audience, and really it's written for anyone who provides primary support for a person living with dementia. That could be an informal carer, such as a family member or friend, or it could be a professional carer, such as a nurse and aide, someone working in more of a formal uh, care environment. Um, And really, um, I I realized that in spite of all of our efforts to deliver person-centered support for people, we really weren't going quite far enough because we were still mostly reacting to people's distress uh, with short-term interventions, and whether they were pills or other interventions, they were uh, sort of putting a band aid on the moment, but they weren 't really solving the person 's needs long term and If you believe well it 's just brain disease, then you would expect that it 's just going to come back every day, and you need to react to it. But I really felt there was something deeper, there was something missing, and that we could actually get ahead of, get ahead of it excuse me and um, and really find ways to take away the cause for this distress in the first place.
2: Now we're going to talk a lot more about this in the subsequent subsequent segments, but I just want to stay with this point about the needs of the people who you're addressing um, and the reason you wrote your book I mean just for a, just one quick example did you get a lot of response to your first book that said to you, "We need to know more or was it more your own sense that we the community, the medical community in particular, the social community, weren't doing enough. But what's your answer to that? I I would
3: say it's a combination of both, Gordon. First of all, uh, when the book first came out, I certainly got some nice notice, as you kindly mentioned. Um, uh, You know, the book didn't fly off the shelves until all of a sudden... Uh, once again, the, when the federal government and the U.S. particularly and other governments started saying, you need to reduce your use of antipsychotic drugs, and by then I not only had the book, but I had a two-day course I'd developed for the Eden Alternative, and that began getting me more and more notice, and what I found as I spoke about this as I taught seminars was that uh, a lot less A lot less backlash than I expected. Maybe I just had, you know, the choir coming to hear me (laughs) preach. I'm not sure. But but I did find that many people were just honestly looking for answers and were willing to listen to somebody who had some new ideas. But even then, as I taught this seminar, uh, beginning with the material in my first book, I saw people, even at the end of two full days, still struggling, not knowing how to start. And I realized that I needed more of a clear framework than what I was getting to. And I really had to distill away... What You know, take away the fog and say, what, how can we get to the essence of this and give people a more direct framework? You know, there, there are many wonderful approaches out there that help people in certain aspects of their life. There are things like, you know, using personalized music through, through MP3 players that have really connected people as the documentary that's coming out next month, Alive Inside, shows there are people that are using uh, enlightened approaches to bathing and personal care. There are people that are using things like aromatherapy. And these things are all beneficial, but they all kind of get at one part or other of a person's life. And I was looking for a bigger thing. I was looking for an umbrella a framework that all these things could fit inside that would give people a bigger picture. The other thing I wanted to accomplish that most people thought my book, my first book, didn't do well enough was to really get to people who support people living in the home or community because uh, most of my anecdotes and examples from the first book were really from skilled care environments. And uh, even though I thought the lessons were translatable to home and community based living, um, that wasn't that clear to people. So with my new book, I've tried much harder to intentionally uh, bring in examples from the community as well because I know that the majority of people who live with dementia don't live in nursing homes. They actually live in their own homes or apartments.
2: And they live very often with their own families either in the same building yes, or alternatively in close communication with the yes. family who visit with them. Now, a very quick question of a rather leading kind. Would you go so far as to say, what 's your book it's talking about is new ways, new approaches, but it's also a message of hope that there is something that lies beyond that, for example, family caregivers can do uh, to produce something that is hopeful, is useful, is beneficial. Am I going too far in saying that about your book?
3: I don't think so. I think my book is absolutely, and my talks are absolutely a message of hope. And um, as a matter of fact, I have a, a chapter. We'll probably get into this later in the hour, but I have a chapter the larger issues of dementia and aging in the 21st century. And the subtitle of that chapter is Refrain, Claiming Hope. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I have to be careful because I am not a person that has had uh, the firsthand family experience that many of your listeners have. And I don't want people to think that I'm being unrealistic or that I don't appreciate uh, some of the struggles that they go through. But I do think that a lot of the struggles are created by things in our system and our approach to care that can be improved. And I do believe that there's a lot of hope where we haven't given it before.
2: Right very good now it's time to take the break as I always say this is where we have to pay the rent this is Dr. <laughs> Gordon Ashley. <Attlee. laughs> my mean, guest <laughs> <laughs> and my guest is Dr. Al Parr you're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio please stay with us we will be back
1: become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america in the spirit of have couch will travel dr carol lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it but now there's an answer
4: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com
1: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to G at org. Now, back to... To Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Al Power. Our topic is Dementia Beyond Disease, new ways of thinking. Um, Al let's talk about the challenges to enhancing the lives and well-being of individuals living with dementia. So, first off, what are the most challenging of the challenges to enhancing the lives and well-being?
3: I think the biggest challenge is the dominant paradigm that we have all been taught, whether we be professionals or family members or other people in society, even those people living with different types of dementia, that this is uh, an an idea where the person is disappearing, they're fading away, they're no longer there. The stigma is actually huge, and I have seen it uh, not only – Uh, remove uh, the idea of hope from a lot of people, but actually affect all the ways we see people, the ways we care for them, the ways we support them uh, to their detriment, sometimes where the uh, effects of our care can be as great or greater than the effects of the illness itself. And that stigma can start very early on. As soon as you acquire the label, people can start discounting you, even though you may have minimal difficulties.
2: Is there anything more you'd like to say about hope? Um,
3: I do have a, a quote that I use in my last chapter, which is uh, maybe people have heard before, and it really talks about reframing hope because I think up to this point, uh, seeing Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia the way we do, we have mostly packaged hope in the idea of. Uh, pretty soon we'll have a cure or a new pill will come out that will uh, slow down the process and make things better. And while I certainly support drug research and I do think we'll find better treatments, I think that to put all our hope in a pill that may or may not be coming next week or next month or next year uh, leaves people wondering, well, what am I going to do for my loved one today? And uh, I love this quote. It's by the uh, former Czech president, Vaclav Havel, uh, the writer who became the president of the Free Czechoslovakia. And he said, hope is not a prognostication. It's an orientation of the spirit. Hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. Life is too precious a thing to permit its devaluation by living pointlessly, emptily, without meaning, without love, and finally, without hope.
2: That's a great quote. Now, you talked earlier about some of the challenges or the the problems associated with what I'm going to call traditional medical care medications and holistic approaches, whether these are delivered together or separately. So my question to you is how effectively do these these treatments, if you call them that, meet the challenges um, to individuals living with dementia?
3: Um, Well, you're going to get a wide variety of opinions on this, and I will certainly give you mine, and I certainly have based this on a lot of uh, data that's in the research as well. when I talk about these medications, let's first be clear that what I'm going to talk about first is medications that are given to people who exhibit various types of expressions of distress or discomfort, um, you know, whether it be people who are calling out, who are striking out, who seem anxious or fearful, uh, who may report things that don't make sense to us. Uh, I want to separate that from the pills that are used to try to uh help the person to to uh, think better, you know, the, the pills like memantine or denepazil that are often given to people to try to uh, change the, the early course. Um, in this case, the biggest class that have been coming under fire are the antipsychotic pills. These pills were developed for use in people with schizophrenia, and because what people with dementia say often sounds bizarre to us, we figure, well, let's give these pills as well. Uh, although, interestingly, when you read the chemical changes in the brain and schizophrenia and dementia, they're quite different and uh, there really is not a chemical rationale why you would use these drugs that block certain chemicals in the brains of people with dementia. Uh, We know now from a lot of our research that these pills are largely ineffective. Even the best studies from the past several decades that were sponsored by the pharmaceutical companies that have many flaws still showed only a 15 to 18% efficacy uh, greater than placebo. And that was with studies that were flawed. And when you look at those flaws and they're partial sponsorship, uh, you realize that even that number may be, uh, may be um, a bit overestimated. In addition, they are showing a host of side effects, and the newer drugs, which were touted as safer, are actually showing new side effects, excess uh, weight gain, high blood sugars, risks of stroke, uh, risks of pneumonia, and even excess death. On uh, an average is 60 to 70 percent higher than a placebo in um, the average of the last several studies. And um, so these pills don't work really well, um, and they're quite risky. But the larger issue is uh, when we look at other drugs, is just the idea that the pill is what the person needs, That somehow their brain chemistry is off and that's going to fix their problem. And that kind of ties into my exploration of these domains of well-being because if you don't have some of these domains of well-being, there are things that you can't ever get out of a pill bottle. And so whether you switch from one of those drugs to an anti-seizure medication or something in the Valium family, you're still stuck in that paradigm that a pill is needed when maybe there must be something that uh, a pill is never going to answer.
2: Now, let me ask you about holistic approaches. Um, That is an approach based on caring for the body as a whole. Um, Probably involves things like diet and and ways of living and styles of living and things of that nature. Um, What about those? How effective are those, whether they combined with these other things you've been talking about or delivered separately? What about holistic approaches?
3: Once again, I'll give you my opinion, and these are quite varied. Um, I think that there are some, there are certain things that clearly can help a person be healthier, and there are some things that have been shown probably overall increase your health over your life and may reduce your risk of uh, problems down the road. And certainly, eating a healthy diet is one of those. And different people have different ideas what a healthy diet is. I have not yet subscribed to any of the extreme diets or the fad diets. I really believe if there's one diet that I would recommend more than anything, it's a Mediterranean-type diet with a lot of uh, nuts and monounsaturated fatty acids like you see or fats like you see in olive oil and uh, not too much meat and a lot of vegetables and those types of things. Also clearly being physically active is good for you. Uh, keeping your brain active is good for you although I'm not as big a fan of the artificial uh, stimulants like uh, like just sitting around and doing puzzles that may or may not uh, be something you want to do but rather just engaging your mind in ways that actually are meaningful. So I think those things are all helpful but I don't think there's any magic bullet and every day in the paper you read about oh eat blueberries oh eat yogurt oh maybe it's it's blueberry yogurt i don't know or eat this or eat that or there's some herb or some vitamin that's going to prevent alzheimer's and i just don't think it's that simple
2: right now i'm going to ask you this burdens on family caregivers you already mentioned this i tend to call them Family caregivers, be, because family is, or family caregivers are what this show is about, but there are obviously professionals involved in the caregiving as well. But let's talk about family caregivers. The sure. burdens on them are well recognized. People know about them, uh, or at least the people who are involved with family caregiving know about them. And my question to you is those burdens. When they get very heavy on family caregivers, what kind of challenges do those create to enhancing the lives and well-being of the family members? How does that work out?
3: yeah and of course uh, I'm speaking to you from south of the border so I, I think but I was just up in Toronto two weeks ago speaking actually, and uh I checked in with some people and I think that there are some similarities here. You certainly i believe have uh, more broad health care coverage than we do for the for the average citizen but um but Generally, certainly in the U.S., and I think to some extent in Canada, the amount of informal uh, care or support that is out there is not great. And uh, a lot of people are doing things at their own expense or are giving up things that, that they might do to uh, to make a living to provide care for somebody. So, So there's the economic burden of supporting somebody at home. Then, of course, there's the burden of if you cannot get a lot of help in the home without paying a lot of money, you may become... Uh, really the the main, not only the family member, but sort of the doctor, nurse, social worker, or personal care aide, and everything else. And that may be an elder spouse. It may be a son or daughter who has a job or child care responsibilities. And so it becomes a very difficult challenge to be that kind of a person and wear all those hats uh, 24-7. And uh, I think often what happens, even at home, is this leads to stress for the caregiver, leads to caregiver burnout. Um, and may lead to over-medication in the home. And the big secret is that even though nursing homes get all the attention, what limited studies we have suggest that probably a lot more of these antipsychotic drugs are being used in people's homes uh, than actually in nursing homes because, once again, people just don't know other ways to respond, and so they
2: reach for the pills. And that's that's rather alarming, isn't it? Because what it means is that harm may occur because of the stress on the family caregivers and them trying to get help to manage their situation and the help they're being provided with, and this is a bit of a question for you, a long question really, um, is actually getting in the way of the well-being and lives of their family members. Is that right?
3: It does, and once again, it's not because they're bad people. I mean, this is a superhuman effort to care for somebody uh, the way many people have to. Um, But I do believe that, once again, we've been taught certain paradigms and certain ways of looking things that actually increase our burdens. And I I love, uh, as I talk about in my first book, uh, Christine Bryden, who lives with dementia in Australia, talks about the term a care partnership. And I love talking about care partners because it reminds us that if we just see ourselves as the person giving the care and the other person purely as a recipient of care, it causes this uh, sort of a, a dysfunction where we feel we have to do everything for two, and that leads to us becoming depressed, sad, and burned out. And the other person has everything done for them. They're not engaged in being part of the of the care, and then they become helpless and develop excess disability, and that just adds to the caregiver's burden. And so Christine Bryden really says we need to partner in care, And uh, the person with dementia is still at the center, not just as an object, but an active partner in this circle of care with all the other people. And uh, I know that um, the folks up there at the University of Waterloo, Dr. Sherry Dupuy and her group, have uh, advocated for the term authentic partnerships in dementia. And I just love that idea because it kind of takes some of the burden off the family member and says, you know, I don't have to do this alone. This person is still there. There's still much they can do if I can learn how to enable them.
2: Yeah, and that supporting family caregivers in those kinds of situations by encouraging them to go into something that isn't a caretaker but is a partnership exactly. is a very is the making the best of all the resources that are available, isn't it?
3: Yes, yes, absolutely. And what I try to do with this well-being approach is to show things that the uh, family carer can do to help that person to reach their optimal potential so that they can be engaged and involved as much as possible
2: right. now we've come to the point where we have to take the break um, so this is Dr. Gordon Atherley and my guest is Dr. Al Power you're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America for Art and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio please stay with us we will be back
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America VoiceAmericaTRN.
4: There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, Jr., President and CEO of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
1: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Al Power. Our topic is Dementia Beyond Disease, New Ways of Thinking. Now let's talk about the new approaches you advocate for success in meeting the types of challenges that you were talking about in the last segment. So first of all, Al, please describe the new approaches you advocate for meeting the challenges and then. And, you know, we're always talking about the lives and well-being of individuals living with dementia. What are the new approaches that you're advocating?
3: Well, this centers on this concept of well-being, and I'll take a moment to explain what that means to me and how I use it in my new book. Uh, It's something I mentioned briefly in the middle of my first book when I talked about what are our goals for people, and I talked about the idea of well-being, kind of reaching beyond just medical outcomes or cognitive function. And I mentioned that maybe that should be our ultimate goal. And... I quoted a, a white paper that was written back in 2005, and as I was thinking about how can I take this further and struggling with how to help people, um, I realized that there was really something in there that I could expand on. And, um, so I use one particular model for well-being, and there are many out there that are very legitimate, but I just had to have one that works for me and that I can teach. And this was developed from a white paper that was developed on a grant uh, from the Eden Alternative for several innovators in elder care and they came up with these seven what they call domains, or seven aspects of well-being. And the important thing about these seven is that they are not tied into how healthy you are, what your brain power is, or what your functional level is. And so they really create uh, these needs that all humans have across the lifespan that theoretically we should be working on and and which really we haven't had much on our radar for people with dementia. And uh, I'll briefly mention those seven domains, and we can peel them back further as we go. The seven domains I use are identity, connectedness, security, autonomy, meaning, growth, and joy. And what I do with my book is I devote a chapter uh, to each of those after some introductory comments. And with each of them, I talk about what I mean by that, how it's challenged by dementia, and not only challenged by the brain changes, but challenged by our systems of care and support. And then I talk about how you can use the different transformative processes, whether it be personal attitudinal transformation, whether it be operational transformation, or whether it be physical environment transformation, to help enhance those in all living environments for people.
2: Now, let's go to um, a question which really flows from what you've just been saying, I think. Please describe for us the ways in which the approaches you advocate for everyday care that involves family caregivers are actually successful in enhancing the lives and well-being of their family members. Well... Well,
3: one of the things I think, once again, uh, the the first two, identity and connectedness, are so tied into stigma. So what I have uh, in those uh, chapters is a lot of uh, challenges to the way we see dementia and a lot of comments from people living uh, in various countries and various communities with different forms of dementia about their needs and about who they are. And once again, maintaining that person's identity, can be very important. Now, along the lines of identity, um, there's a bit of a challenge for for family members because um, they know the person's identity well, their past identity, but the person's identity is also evolving, and their needs and priorities and abilities are also evolving. And often I see family members get stuck with trying to engage people in things they always used to do or trying to quiz them on things in the past to try to maintain their memory and despairing if the person doesn't completely engage. So I have a lot of advice for helping family members to understand that just like all of us, the person is evolving over time and how to maintain those parts of identity that continue to uh, support the person, but also how to help people let go and evolve the the new identity of the person uh, as they change over time. And I'm thinking of Jim Mann from Vancouver who lives at Alzheimer's and advocates a lot about this, meeting him a few years ago and having him say to me, you know, I'm not the same person I was before. I have a new normal, and this is what I work with. And, and my wife and I know that uh, I'm going to take who I am today and I'm going to try to make
2: the best of that. Let me just ask you a little bit more about that. That is making the best. Your, your point about well being um, quality of life is a phrase we tend to hear a lot these days. The quality of life of people uh, who are making the best in relation to dementia is that the same thing as well being, or is it something different?
3: I think it can be the same thing. The problem with quality of life at least in my professional work and, and certainly in uh, skilled care environments is that uh, and, and in research environments, I think we tend to measure quality of life still very much by medical outcomes uh, how, and so we tend to rate people's quality of life uh, by how well they can think, how well they can remember, whether they can walk by themselves, whether they can drive a car and if that's the only way you rate quality of life or well-being, then a person with dementia by definition could never have quality of life and and so i'm trying to get at those aspects that go beyond one's abilities and uh, i think that this is uh, a really important sort of blind spot is that we haven't uh, gone that far in uh, measuring these things
2: right now next question Um, This relates to people living with dementia, where the dementia has caused them to lose their memory abilities and also to lose, whether it's total loss or just impairment, of the ability to make decisions in their own best interests. So what are the approaches that you specifically advocate for those two situations where people have lost memory, things have gone, from their memory, and either as a result of that or associated with it the kind of decisions they make may not be in the best interest or for that matter may not be in the best interests of other people how do you how do you approach that, that
3: oh, yeah that, you know when i started writing these chapters i knew that the chapter i called autonomy would be the biggest one <laughs> and would be the biggest challenge because that's something that is so important to all of us and yet so easily challenged early on not only by people's abilities but even more so by society how we see their abilities. And um, I'll just tell you a quick story to show you how pervasive the stigma can be in our society. I met a gentleman on the West Coast U.S. named Ed Voris who wrote a book about living positively with Alzheimer's. And when he was first diagnosed, uh, it was really his own internal awareness. It was not something other people would notice about his thinking. But he knew things weren't right. He took himself to the doctor, asked for testing, and it turned out he did have early stage Alzheimer's. And when he found out the news, he drove quickly to a, an Alzheimer's support organization by himself, drove over there, walked in, and mentioned that he had just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and was looking for support. And the person at the desk said, well, where's your family member? Where's your advocate? And he said, well, I'm here to advocate for myself. And the response he got was, I can't talk to you come back when you're the family member and he went to two or three different adult support organizations and got the same response so Once again, the slippery slope happens extremely quickly. Um, So with that in mind, uh, one of the points I make that's very important in the autonomy chapter is that most people living with dementia can make some decisions at some level. What we tend to do is we tend to have all or none thinking. So uh, once the label is applied, people can't do for themselves anymore. And And the other thing we tend to do is we tend to view security only from the aspect of physical safety. We don't think about emotional security. Security uh, that comes with, you know, continuing to, to engage in ways that support you. And uh, so as a result, we tend to do things that uh, try to eliminate any downside risk, but at the same time we eliminate any risk that the person can grow and have positive experiences. And so what I talk to people about is negotiating risk, that you can never eliminate risk. Uh, my friend Dr. Bill Thomas says the only risk-free human environment is a casket, and I think that's probably pretty true. And so I have a, a stepwise process where you can talk to a person, understand what they'd like to do, understand the values that drive their desire, talk about abilities, and then find a spectrum, a continuum of empowerment where you can help them to try to continue to be involved in decision-making to the best of their ability, and then, of course, to monitor it over time, keep other uh, people involved in the decision so they understand what's going on, but also check to make sure the decisions you're making, are, you're making are working out and that as person's abilities change over time, you know, they may need to be revisited as well. So there are many ways people can be empowered and be engaged in decisions if we learn how to truly partner with them.
2: Here in Canada earlier this year, there was a tragedy um, where about 32 seniors lost their lives in a long-term residence. Um, because there were no sprinklers, fire sprinklers. And the reason that was given by the agency responsible was well, we thought this community was autonomous and therefore could make their own decisions. And what that brought home, and it's very controversial this, but it nevertheless made the point that there are occasions where people make. Uh, have empowered decision making to the extent that they need other people to make decisions, whether it's about fire sprinklers or safety in general, to protect them and also to protect the others. Very controversial. What do you think about that point?
3: Well, I think one of the mistakes people make, and it leads us to this all in unthinking, is that empowerment always has parameters. It always has boundaries, Uh, whether you live with dementia or whether it's you and me. And I remind people that if we get a driver's license, we can drive anywhere we want, but you still have to stop when the light turns red. So there are always guidelines that prevent empowerment from becoming chaos. And uh, once again, that is part of what I talk about when I talk about negotiating risk. How can you improve the person chance for quality of life without going overboard with risk. And I think nowadays with any public building, whether it be a hotel, a nursing home, uh, sprinklers are becoming fairly standard and they're becoming code. And uh, so I I just think, you know, I would challenge that and say, well, you know, we have a responsibility with these types of buildings that we have to have a certain uh, degree of of, um, environmental uh, safety in place. And I don't think that really... um, takes away anybody's rights. I don't see that as disempowering people who live there. I, I believe it's giving guidance to create a safe living environment for them.
2: I'm going to make a controversial remark. You could even say that it's a matter of common sense.
3: Uh, yeah, but you know what? Passes for common sense often doesn't seem to happen these days. So, so I mean, people read my book and they say, gee, a book seems like common sense. I say it is, and yet nobody's doing it, so there's obviously a barrier there. And that's where regulations, operations, paradigms kind of get in the way of doing what we think would be the easy thing
2: perfectly fair that was a good answer now once again it's time to take the break so we'll do that now this is Dr. Gordon Atley and my guest is Dr. Al Power you're listening to Family of Us Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio please stay with us we will be back
4: and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working For You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety.
0: Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune in to Better Worldians Radio, with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating
4: talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg.com. At FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Now back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite, and Dr. Al Power. Our topic is dementia beyond disease: new ways of thinking. Al, now let's talk about the things you would you would like to do and you would like to see done to promote the new approaches you're advocating. So first of all, Al, what more would you like to do? Well, what i really
3: love to do is clone myself, but since that technology is not available yet, um, I, I, my book has a lot of challenges in it. Uh, it challenges a lot of uh, the paradigms that are out there. Even among people who are looking for more person-centered approaches, there are some challenges for everyone. But more so, it has a fairly radical thesis, and that is, that I believe that much of the distress we see that's not easy to figure out actually comes from erosion of these various domains of well-being. And that if we actually stop reacting to the behavior we see and work in the background to restore these domains of well-being, we actually create an infrastructure where the person can be uh, much more better off and uh, and much better off, and uh, also uh, not have the distress in the first place. So we can really get behind instead of just reacting to the stress, take it away in a proactive manner. Um, so what I would love to do is not only teach this more broadly, but find some research partners who could actually find uh, some care environments who would be willing to take this on in a big way and study it to create some evidence behind it. Not an easy thing to do when you have multiple facets organically changing over time. These aren't single intervention studies where you give a pill or a placebo and watch it for 12 weeks. So these things are not easy to study, but I think a lot of people want to see some evidence and want to see it working for people.
2: Right. Now, what more would you like to see done by healthcare and social systems.
3: Well, that gets to where I am at the end of my book, and that is really to look at the larger issues of global aging and the statistics uh, regarding dementia, and to say what more can we be doing. And I think there's a lot we should be doing that, particularly in the U.S., we are not doing. Um, once again, we are just seeing this aging as you know the silver tsunami, as they call it. And, and there are a couple of paradigms that need to shift. First of all, we need to understand that older people are just not broken people in need of services, but actually have a wealth of experience and things to give back to society. So it's not just a matter of who's going to pay for all this care. It's a matter of how can we keep elders engaged in our communities in a meaningful way so they once again are also engaging in partnerships. The other thing we need to do is we need to physically shift our communities and create more Uh, People say age-friendly. I like the words age-inclusive communities and also dementia-inclusive communities so that people can live and succeed in their neighborhoods and not have to move to uh, these senior living campuses because the truth is aging demographics will make that a big failure in about 20 years. We are not going to have enough young people to keep building and staffing campuses for older people. We have got to learn to re-engage them and create more of a reciprocity than we've done so far.
2: Now, I'm going to ask you just an intermediate kind of question, and that's this. Do you see any benefit coming from the idea of a guideline or set of guidelines for family caregivers along the lines of clinical practice guidelines that physicians are accustomed to and rely on widely, but written in language that's accessible to family caregivers and which is based on an understanding of what they face but also uses modern internet technology to convey things that are understandable and actually useful and of course information that's trustworthy what do you think I'm a big fan of that, um, and what I try to do with my
3: book is to take the idea of those guidelines a bit further. There are a lot of uh, very decent guidelines out there coming from various groups, uh, advocates, uh, that do educate people and provide them with some ideas, but they're still, uh, they're kind of deficit-based, and they're kind of, when the person does this, respond in this way, respond in that way. They don't get behind it and understand how you create the substrate for day-to-day well-being, uh, and that's where I'm trying to push things a little further with my book and say, yeah, Yes, these are good guidelines, but let's take it deeper. Let's find out what you can be doing, even on a good day, to make sure that you'll have more good days.
2: What about the idea of getting people who've had the experience of being family caregivers and also had the experience of dementia themselves talking among themselves, but on radio in the way that we're doing it. Do you think that kind of discussion would be helpful to others who are in the earlier stages of these things and starting to wonder what's in store for them? What do you think about that?
3: Oh, I think absolutely, Gordon. And there are a couple of things I could mention. Now, out in Western Canada, there's a woman named Laura Bowley who does a uh, a uh, show, a monthly show called A Meeting of the Minds. And it's primarily for people living with dementia, but also those who care, or care for or support them. And they have a, a conference call where they talk about issues and have guest speakers. And that's one I can certainly recommend. And there are also the international and national dementia advocacy networks where people living with dementia and those close to them are... Are uh, creating networks of support for each other, communication networks, uh, and there are uh, different places around the world where this is happening at the community level as well, particularly the UK is way ahead of the rest of us as far as creating these dementia-friendly initiatives and educating townspeople about their neighbors and and, uh, creating more infrastructure to support people. So all these things, I think, are, are great movements, and we just have to find ways to coordinate and broaden them.
2: Right. Now, last question. What's your message for family caregivers with family members living with dementia? Huh? <clears throat>
3: My message, I guess, would be that that person is still there. They may not uh, remember everything they used to. They may not be able to do everything they used to, but that person is very much still that person that you love and care for, that uh, they need to be engaged in meaningful life every single day to the best of their ability, and uh, we need to pay attention to their well-being and uh, always try to create that no matter what their abilities or their memory may be.
2: I've done, just to respond to you positively, I've done one or two episodes or several um, where people who have run the course, so to speak, of looking after a family member with dementia throughout their life until the person dies. And I ask the question, well, does that mean it's possible for family members with dementia to be cared for at home throughout their lives and the kind of people I've spoken to and that's not a statistical sample of course um, are saying yes do you agree with that
3: I think there are many who can, and I uh, actually reference a couple of books written by uh, people who cared for a loved one at home uh, right throughout their lives with dementia because I really want that community and family support perspective in my book. But uh, I only hesitate because um, I. everybody's situation is unique, and I would never want to imply that if you're in the situation where you can't do that, where you need help, that you're somehow inferior. I think some people just have challenges that are insurmountable, and there are times when people actually do blossom in more of a formal care environment and do better because just whatever, the the numbers didn't add up for them to spend their entire lives at home. And while it's desirable, uh, if a person becomes isolated or if the family carer, can't um, flex to meet their needs, uh, then a home can be just as institutional as any nursing home you can imagine, and that's when it's not helping.
2: Right. Does your book uh, address the kind of questions that family um, families are worried about when they're, when they're wondering, is it time for my family member to go into some kind of care facility? Do you deal with those in the book? I talk a bit about that in both
3: books. I don't, I don't ask and answer that question specifically, but what I think this framework provides, and, and I have lots of friends who ask me about their relatives who are home who are having some struggles and ask me, do you think it's time? And my response is really to look at these seven domains of well-being. When the domains of well-being begin to become eroded for the person and that care partner at home can no longer maintain their well-being, then that may be the time for them to move to a place that's better able to support that. And then they can assume a primary role as a family member and advocate and give up all the doctor, nurse, social worker aid roles to uh, people who can do around the clock and and, uh, support them as
2: well. Right. Now, unfortunately, we're at the end of this episode. Profoundly important. I wish you All possible success with the book because the message, the information in it, uh, the way in which you've approached um, some of these challenging questions is indeed new. Because it's a respectful approach that says there is something, there is something we can look forward to in the form of hope. Um, We can make the best of the situation. We can think in terms of well-being. And that way is a good way forward, especially as I think we're going to see more and more pressure on family caregivers to give their more of their services into caring for individuals who, one way or another, perhaps can be cared for at home. So that's a very long-winded way of saying to you, Al... Please keep up the good work because it matters to every one of us one way or another. All success to you and your work. And if I can do another episode with you to um, uh, move, help things move, help move your message out, help you in any other way, I'd be delighted to do so. Now, Thank you, Gordon. Pay- I'd be
3: happy to do that. And thanks for the important work you're doing to get the message out there.
2: Thank you so much. I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode from our listeners. I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be family caregiving for MS. Please join us. Same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then.